Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we will be discussing deep water scuba diving and the perils that come with it. We will discuss the discovery of an unknown U-boat off the coast of America and the lives it cost when trying to identify which U-boat it was. I am very excited for this episode, and it is one that I've wanted to do for ages uh, since I decided to start the podcast. There were two episodes I really wanted to do, this one and the Everest one, and you guys enjoyed the Everest one, so hopefully uh, you'll enjoy this as well. I find deep water scuba diving terrifying, but super, super fascinating and just a whole, a whole nother world. So yeah, let's get into it. So I'll just start with a bit of an explanation about normal scuba diving and then about deep water scuba diving and the differences. And then we'll go into the uh, story we're going to focus on around the German U-boat. When it comes to normal scuba diving, hopefully uh, we all know what it is. So scuba is the act of diving deep underwater and using breathing apparatus in order to be able to breathe and to explore the the depths of the ocean and enjoy time underwater, basically. And it allows a person to spend a lot more time underwater than obviously they would be able to if they were just holding their breath. And so the thing with uh, with scuba diving, even normal scuba diving, is that it can be quite a dangerous uh, sport. Obviously, spending time underwater is never never great for for us humans that can't breathe there. And so there is lots of training uh, for anyone to undergo if they do want to become a diver. And this training helps to explain how to dive safely and how to do it successfully. And this kind of normal scuba diving is also called recreational diving. Uh, and it's it's probably what most people think of when they think of scuba. So when you go and do training for, for normal scuba, you start by learning what all the equipment is. You learn about the air tanks. You learn about the regulator and how you breathe, breathe through it and breathe using the air tanks themselves. Uh, you learn about things like dive computers, which help you understand where you are and how deep you are. Uh, you also, and then you also learn about like things like buoyancy and how to use a weight belt so that you know how to stay under the water and create the, the right amount of buoyancy. Uh, and then all of that, plus even more <laughs> around all of the kit, masks, fins, suits, all of that. So, so even in this recreational scuba, there's a lot of different parts and a lot of things to be aware of. And so for, for this recreational scuba, it's usually recommended that a diver only dives to 130 feet or 40 meters below the surface of the water. And this depth, even even getting to kind of 130 feet, 40 meters is quite deep for a lot of a lot of recreational divers. Uh, but that's the, the kind of the, the limit that they that they really recommend. And the reason for that is it means that the diver can directly ascend from where they're diving straight up to to the boat to the surface and and be okay so they can dive down to 130 feet have a fun time swim around uh, and then ascend back up to the surface if they dive any deeper or they do spend a long amount of time at that lower level, then they will have to do something called decompression and manage decompression, which leads to things like decompression sickness and the bends if it's not managed correctly. We're going to talk about decompression in a lot more detail uh, as we go through. 
Uh, the other thing to note with normal recreational scuba is that generally people dive as part of buddies or teams and that's so that they can help each other underwater and the theory is that if anything goes wrong the other person is there to help out and is able to you know maybe share their air share their oxygen uh, and, and make sure that they both get back safely. So let's now compare this to deep water scuba. So deep water scuba is very different to recreational scuba and what most people are familiar with. So deep water scuba, or it's often called technical diving, and it basically means any kind of diver that goes deeper than that 130 feet that we talked about. And any diver which requires decompression in order to get back to the surface. So these are the dives where you cannot just directly ascend. You can't dive down and then just swim swim back to the surface and, and head off. Uh, you have to do this concept of decompression uh, in order to be able to be safe and be able to, to get back uh, above, above the water. And generally, this technical diving is usually, you know, like, why would you do it? So often you would do it to, to see something good and to see something interesting. So this technical diving is often combined with other quite risky things, such as cave diving or with shipwreck diving. And that's definitely what we'll be talking about today. So let's talk a little bit about decompression then, because it is a interesting concept and it reminds me a lot of what we talked about in the Everest episodes about altitude sickness. So basically, everyone just needs to stay on flat land <laughs> in order for us all to be safe. But yes, let's talk about this. So basically, when a diver dives very deeply, there are different pressures acting on them. And same with the altitude sickness. I'm not very good at pressures and physics. So I, I don't know exactly what happens. But basically, there's different pressures acting on the body. And there's different pressures in the water versus the air that they're breathing. And so what happens to the diver is that nitrogen and other gases build up in the body. And they form bubbles basically throughout the body. And these bubbles move into your tissues and into your bloodstream. And the, the deeper you go and the longer you are at depth, the more bubbles there are and the more that they will hang around. And these bubbles are what are re is really dangerous uh, if you don't get rid of them before you come back to the surface. As the nitrogen and these bubbles build up in your body... The deeper you go, the more the nitrogen really starts to impact your brain and causes something called nitrogen narcosis. And again, I'm just going to do a thousand parallels to, to tall mountains, but very similar to altitude kind of confusion and sickness, right? Uh, where basically your, your brain just doesn't work very well at, at, this, at these pressures. What it basically says in a, in a book I read recently that for every 50 feet you dive, it's basically like drinking one martini. <laughs> so you can see that we're talking about people that are diving more than 150 feet. So it, it's starting to, you know, people feeling quite, quite drunk if they are diving at these depths and their, their thoughts are going to be impaired and they are going to be more confused and confused easily. But again, similar to altitude sickness, people manage this depth and the pressure and the nitrogen really differently. So some are fine and can do a lot longer than others. Some it really impacts you uh, and, and it will really impact um, the amount and depth you can dive. So with all these bubbles and the nitrogen, basically your body needs the chance to get rid of them. And the way that it gets rid of them is by 
doing what's called decompression. And decompression basically means that you stop at set depths as you move back up towards the surface. So you'll say you're diving to 200 feet, you might stop at 100 feet for a while, then you stop at 50 feet, 20 feet, 15 feet, etc. And the idea is that as the pressures differ, the closer to the surface you are, the uh, the bubbles are able to, you're able to get rid of them and then you're able to to surface safely. And then these decompressions can last a lot, lot, like can last a really long time and last a lot longer than the dive itself. So for example, you could be on the bottom 200 feet down for 20 minutes, but then you might have to decompress for like three hours in order to get back up to the boat. So we're talking a long time in order to be safe. And this is what makes it like deep water technical diving so scary and so dangerous is because once you go into the depth where you need decompression, if as a diver you get into trouble, you basically have no good option. (laughs) Um, You know, if you get into trouble at the bottom or if you have problems with your oxygen supply, you need enough oxygen, not just to get down and swim around, but you need enough oxygen to last through your decompression. So if something goes wrong, you can't just swim to the surface because you know you're going to get ill. So divers are basically faced with this like horrific dilemma if something goes wrong. They can stay underwater and drown because they have run out of air or for whatever other reason, or they can swim directly to the surface, but they're very likely to get hit by decompression sickness. And if they have been down at the depths we're talking about, that decompression sickness can definitely be fatal. So combine the nitrogen narcosis of your brain not working very well with these kind of impossible dilemmas that divers sometimes face, it means that it's not not a great time if things go wrong. What happens with decompression sickness then if they do swim really um, fast to the surface or they just happen to, to not decompress enough? So it might not be a, a swim up, but maybe they don't spend long enough at a specific depth. Then basically the bubbles don't don't disappear and the bubbles expand and force themselves out. And this can cause a lot of pain. It can cause pain in the joints uh, and it can be very serious. It can thicken the blood. It can cause clots. It can cause paralysis, brain uh, impacts and problems and eventually death. And the scary thing about it is that it's really unpredictable and some people will be impacted totally differently to others. Some might die very quickly. Some might live doing the exact same thing. It's, It's very unpredictable and it's something that obviously isn't huge isn't hugely common so there is studies about it but there isn't there isn't enough knowledge really about exactly how it works and you may know it as as it's being called the bends um and they called it the bends because basically when people would surface from the from the the ocean and they would get decompression sickness they would be so in so much pain they were basically like contorted into different positions kind of all bent up and they so that's why they called it the bends 
I'm going to continue to refer to it as decompression sickness, um, as that is the correct term. So not only is there that, um, which these technical divers have to manage, uh, there's lots more as well that they need to, uh, to manage, to comprehend, to do in order to stay safe. So first of all, the fact that it's cold. <laughs> Pretty self-explanatory. Deeper you get, colder you get. Uh, staying warm is really important. They have different suits and different ways of staying warm. But yeah, it, it, it is a problem. The next is that it's dark and well, I don't know if, if you're one of those people like me that really doesn't like deep water, then this kind of like dark abyss uh, below is not not something that sounds very, very nice. But yeah, basically, obviously the deeper you get, darker it gets, uh, water and the light can't penetrate the water. And this means that everything is more dangerous because it's harder to see things. It's easier to get lost to swim into into obstacles to just just there's so many things that can go wrong in the dark and this means that these deep technical divers or cave divers for example they need to carry a lot of like lights high powered lights that type of thing that they can use through their dive to make sure that they stay safe and they can see what they're doing Next thing they have to do is actually a bit of a <laughs> an odd one until you think about it but uh the thing that can be really dangerous with deep diving is actually other people. Compared to shallow dives like we talked about, they tend to do them in, in pairs. But actually, when you're diving to these depths, it's it's often a diver will dive by themselves and, and they think it's safer that way. And that is because other divers at those depths can just cause too much confusion, too much danger. Uh, and it's just, it, yeah, it's not a space where you want to be responsible and saving others. And there's like been some horrible stories of like divers, like killing each other whilst, you know, trying to, um, trying to get oxygen from each other and just, just horrible things like that because of the confusion, because of the horrible, circumstances that you end up in and the and the hard decisions that you have to take so it can be yeah dangerous just to be around other people at that depth so a lot of people like I say do do dive alone and then finally the last thing that you need to be worried about if that wasn't enough uh, is getting stuck so often like I mentioned you would do deep diving so that you could go in something so whether that be a cave or whether that be a shipwreck but both of those basically mean that you're in something that you can't just swim out of. <laughs> um, so you're in something that you need to navigate, something that you need to find your way back out from, and something that means that you cannot just swim up. Uh, and that it makes it infinitely harder than, than if you were just, you know, bobbing around in the ocean and, and able to just head back for the surface. So yeah, super fascinating. I never really thought about uh, deep water diving, but I it's there's so many things and all of them scary but interesting so let's dive into our story now and we're going to the 90s and this was where the development of technical diving by non-professionals was really happening so there has always been professional divers who may dive to very deep depths uh for example like in the navy and other professions around like construction that type of thing and they manage things differently but this was really the time that that non-professionals amateurs got involved in this technical diving and started doing it themselves 
And a lot of this was happening in America. And there are quite a few different wrecks off the coast of America. And often there will be trips from the coast off to see these wrecks and dive them. And one of the favourite wrecks that they dive, dived, dove? One of of their favourite wrecks uh, was one called the Andrea Doria. And that was a wreck that sank in 1956 after it collided with another ship. And it sank off the coast of Nantucket, so it's been pretty easy for people to get to. And it's a very interesting wreck because it basically obviously got a big hole in it when it whacked into another boat, but it it stayed pretty well together when it went under. And so the top of the Andrea Doria lies about 160 feet below, but the wreck itself continues on for many feet below that itself. And it's known by wreck divers at the time um, as the Mount Everest of diving due to the fact that it was really deep. It was uh, really strong currents in the area, so it was quite easy to kind of be swept away, swept off course, um, and it was very, very cold. Anyone who is really into this deep water scuba uh, with with wreck diving was obsessed with the Andrea Doria and the Doria was one which everyone wanted to dive everyone wanted to get to everyone wanted to go in and find some kind of artifact or some treasure that they could bring home and finding new wrecks was a dream for a lot of dri- divers so it was a dream to to find wrecks to find new new little rooms in wrecks to find new pieces of treasure and I can totally get it it comes back to almost what we were talking about last time about in Scott about you know this need for exploration this need to to find new things and I think this comes out when when diving but we're not going to talk too much about the Doria but I, I think it gives good context because it's a wreck that all of the people we're, talk, we're going to talk about dove quite a lot and it is a good example of what wreck diving entails and how dangerous it is. So on the Doria, at least 22 divers have died uh, on the wreck, either from decompression sickness, as we've talked about, from having to ascend quickly, or by drowning through being trapped somewhere in the wreck. So through cables, wires, or just collapsing areas of the ship. Obviously, the ship has been underwater for a very long time so it is not stable things fall off things collapse yeah it's a very dangerous place to be so in 1991 one of the boats and its captain who frequently took out divers including divers to the andrea doria heard from some fishermen that they thought there must be a wreck somewhere off the new jersey coast and basically these fishermen had obviously seen that this wreck was there on their radar uh, and tipped tipped the divers off and said you should go and check it out and see what's actually down there and so they headed out and did an initial dive and on that initial dive it was discovered that it was a u-boat so a u-boat being a german submarine from the war but the thing with this u-boat was it was very deep so it was actually located underwater at 230 feet so almost 100 feet deeper uh, than what we previously said recreational or, or normal divers would do. So a really dangerous depth. And because it was so deep, it meant that the divers could only spend a really small amount of time at the depth in order to explore it. So they may only spend 10, 11, 12 minutes actually down there before they then have to do hours of decompression to come back. 
Not only that, again, the other factors come into play. It was really cold. The wreck itself was quite hard to navigate. It had small corridors um, and the middle of it had basically exploded. So there was a lot of of uncertainty and, and danger within the wreck itself. But the thing is, is that the group that found this wreck were thrilled. Like I mentioned, finding something this exciting, this new, they were so excited to find it. But it wasn't just finding it that was exciting. They basically looked at different historical records and tried to figure out what boat it was because there it is. Surely we should know what it is. And But in the records up to this point, there was no evidence of any U-boats being found or, or sailing in that area. This now became a mystery. What was this boat? What, you know, what number was it? Let's try and actually figure out what it is and what the history of it is. And at this point, uh, they nicknamed the boat the Yoo-Hoo <laughs> um, because they basically were like, U-boat, but who? Uh, and it would remain that way for quite some time. So let's talk now about a couple of divers that would be tragically involved with the Yoo-Hoo. So Chris and Chrissy Rouse were father and son who had dived regularly for years. They started originally as cave divers, actually, and learned their skills cave diving down in Florida. And they became real professionals at cave diving. They loved it. So they became very skilled at like specific cave diving skills so being able to navigate in tight areas they learnt to mount their tanks in a different way basically like at the sides or in front of them so that then uh, they could make it through small you know small gaps small holes in the cave and they also as part of cave diving really learnt this concept that you always take more oxygen more air than you need uh, and you always include backups and you must always be fully self-sustainable in the cave itself when cave diving they would carry a line and basically they would take that line and and carry it all the way through and that line would then be able to help them find their way back out that line was their literal lifeline it would take them out to safety and it was something that they always used and with cave diving in air, they followed a theory which makes a lot of sense, which was basically you use a third of the tank getting down and in the cave itself, that leaves a third for returning and then a third if anything goes wrong. So they learned all these really fundamental rules and techniques and they were, yeah, really, really great at what they did. Alongside the cave diving, they also were quite experienced in learning about different gas mixtures. So... At this point in the 90s, it was just starting for divers to use different mixes of gas to breathe rather than just air. And the theory with using these different gases, things like nitrox, so nitrogen and oxygen, is that it would help speed up decompression, uh, but also is the hope that it would kind of stave off some of this nitrogen narcosis uh, and allow them to, to be more clear-headed underwater. But as with anything, when it's still in its infant stages, uh, using these different types of gases was very expensive um, and the Rousers did end up rarely using them. So the Rousers themselves, really, really experienced divers, loved it, and they really built up a strong relationship with the diving community. So Chrissy worked in a dive shop and Chris eventually set up a business to maintain and fix diving equipment 
And they, after the cave diving, they then became interested in wreck diving. And they went wreck diving a few times, but took those techniques that they learned from cave diving into that area. And they uh, applied really well to that, to that new domain. So soon there were lots of dives happening to the U-boat. And generally it was the same group of divers that found the Yoohoo from the first day. And the aim with all of the dives was to try and identify the ship. And it was really difficult because it had been there for a really long time. There was just no real identifying marks, mainly because in when the U-boats were constructed, a lot of the identification areas were built in really weak metal. And so a lot of them had just rusted or, or decayed away. So in 1991, a a diver, a diver called Steve Feldman went down buddying with Paul Sabinski and their plan was that they would dive 13, dive down and spend 13 minutes at the wreck before starting their long ascent back up. So after going down, exploring for the 13 minutes, Paul began to surface, but he soon noticed that Steve wasn't with him. And he turned around and searched for him at the bottom of the bottom of the ocean, but eventually found him at the bottom, just totally unresponsive uh, and not swimming, not not anything. Paul then had one of these horrible moments of of like we mentioned, what what do I do? I can't swim to the surface because it's so deep and that would be really dangerous. But how else can I save Steve? So he tried to to allow them to decompress, but because the currents were so strong, he really struggled to hold him. And, you know, it's a person combined with all of the kit as well. It's going to be really heavy. So they made it, he made it to the line, tried to take Steve up, but it was just not possible. And eventually he basically had to leave him behind. And one of the things that really impacted this is when a diver estimates how much air they need to dive and and to last the length of the dive that they're on it it assumes quite a steady breathing rate so it it assumes not heavy exhaustion you know heavy exhaling so if paul was going to pull steve up it just it would it would mean that he would run out of oxygen as well so eventually paul did ascend and many divers went down after to find steve but he couldn't be found Uh, And sadly, he was eventually found by fishermen five months later and several miles away from the dive site. And it's just assumed that it could be nitrogen sickness. It could have been a lot of people sometimes get seizures from drinking, uh, get seizures from breathing in oxygen. And sometimes that happens at depth. And if that happens, then um, there's not much, not much to go from there. So as a result of this really tragic death on the wreck, some of the original crew of divers who found the Yoohoo and who had been diving it regularly basically decided that it was too dangerous to continue. It wasn't, you know, they didn't want to go back. They were basically done with the wreck. And this meant that there was a gap left for someone to join the team, for someone to come out on these dives with them. And the Roosters were really keen to take that place. So time to the for their fateful dive they had dived before 
And then on this next dive, they planned everything as normal, took all their bottles, kit, everything that they wanted to take and everything that they would normally take with them cave diving as well. And when they got down to the bottom, the dive went as normal and they were going to spend a few minutes exploring the wreck. Uh, They were using their line to make sure that they could find their way out. And the idea with this one was that Chrissy would go into the ship and do some exploring into a new area and Chris would stay outside to supervise. And what they often did was, because the wreck is so tight, is that they would take off some of their oxygen tanks and leave them at the start of where the line is so that then they can go into the ship, they can dive and swim around and do all that they need whilst being, you know, relatively thin and small and then come out, pick up the extra extra gas bottles and then use those to breathe through their decompression. But once Chrissy went into the wreck itself, it became clear a couple of minutes later there was a loud crash uh, and it was clear that Chrissy had been crushed and was trapped in the wreck itself. Chris obviously is diving with his son. He immediately did what I think any of us probably would do and, and go in straight after him. Just, just, just went straight in there to try and free him. And thankfully he did. He was successful at pulling Chrissy out But through all of this confusion, all of this time, they lost the end of their line and they they ended up exiting in in a different way than they planned. So they made it out of the wreck, but there was not a lot of light. It was cold. There was strong um, strong currents and they tried to find the gas, the oxygen bottles that they would need in order to, to to ascend and to manage their decompression. And at this point, they've been at the bottom way longer than their, you know, 12 minutes or whatever they planned. So they've been there 40 minutes or more. So they knew they would have had to have a really long decompression because of this, but they couldn't find the bottles. They just couldn't find them. The stress combined with the nitrogen narcosis and the confusion just meant everything was a bit of a mess. So again, they had the the two the horrible choice that we talked about, do they stay on the bottom and drown or ascend and hope that they could be saved. They did choose to ascend. By the time that Chris reached the surface, he suffered severe explosive decompression sickness and died basically as soon as he hit the surface itself. The team on the boat actually tried to get Chrissy to take oxygen bottles and go back underwater so that then he could continue on the ascent uh, and do the decompression and sometimes that works if someone does come up they can go back down and that can that can help but he was just too panicked by this point he was losing feeling he was getting paralyzed uh, and, and they had no choice really other than to pull him out Once they pulled him out, they did alert the Coast Guard and the Coast Guard did bring a helicopter and lifted Chrissy to hospital. But they just couldn't do much to help. His, They said, you know, his blood was basically just bubbles. It was foam. There was just so much gas in his system. And they put him in a recompression chamber. And the idea with the recompression chamber is that they uh, put you up to the the pressure that you would be under underwater and then slowly decrease that down to, to re, re-enact uh, decompressing. But in this case, for Chrissy, it was just, it was just too late. He'd gone too deep. Uh, he had spent too long down there and the recompression chamber just couldn't emulate the same conditions. So a few hours later, after attempting the recompression, his heart gave out and he also died as a result of the wreck. 
And I just think that's such a tragic story because they just both, you know, father, son, really sad. But they both just loved diving. <laughs> you know, like they knew, they they loved it. And yeah, it's a, it's a dangerous, it's a dangerous sport. So after these three deaths on the Yoohoo, uh, it it would still attract divers. You can't stay away from it. Uh, I read another, I'll talk about a book later, but in the book, the author also got decompression sickness after diving the Doria and, you know, got very ill, had to be recompressed, all this kind of stuff. And he just talks really, really clearly about just the need, the need to get back in the sea and, and diving and, and doing all of this stuff. And I think it is, it's that addiction, isn't it? And similar for for mountaineers and the people that have very dangerous times climbing these mountains, you just don't get they just don't get it from anything else. They continued diving the wreck and trying to figure out what it was, but it would take more than six years worth of dives to the wreck before it would be successfully identified. So initially they found a pen knife and the pen knife had the name Horenberg carved into it. And they looked up this name to see who, uh, what ship this person had been on and it came up as the U-869. But they disregarded this because the U-869 was reportedly crashed off the coast of Africa. So they thought that it definitely couldn't be that one because it was just too far away. However, hunting continued and they did eventually find a spare parts box from the control room, uh, which was actually the very last room that they were able to access because it was right in the heart of the sub. Uh, And they did find out that it was indeed the U-869. So now, even though we've figured out what what U-boat it was, it how the boat got there and how it crashed it is still still a mystery. There is a theory it might have been taken down by some U.S. ships, uh, but there is also a theory that it was actually hit by its own torpedo, which had did happen to some of the U-boats in the war because it basically listened listens for sound and then locks onto the sound, and sometimes it basically gets sent off but then locks back onto the sub turns around and hits it. So yeah, a bit bit tragic. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do now know what the submarine is uh, and able to to learn where it it actually did end up. Following this tragic tale of the Yoohoo, I think we definitely have learned some things and there's definitely some things that can happen to improve the safety of diving. So in some cases now, there are recompression chambers on boats uh, if someone does happen to ascend and, and get decompression sickness, the most important thing is to try and recompress them as soon as possible. If you are on a boat in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> getting from that boat to a hospital, which has a decompression chamber, can sometimes take a long time. Uh, so having these on boats, having a mobile one or a temporary one is, is a real uh, improvement, but it is expensive. Not all boats have them, but it is something that has has started happening since this story. There has also been, since then, a lot more use of these mixed gases that I talked about. And the hope with these is that, one, they help and lessen decompression because you're breathing a different mix. It also helps uh, clearer decision-making, clearer heads, uh, so that then hopefully uh, no one will uh, make accidentally make a mistake or, or get confused. The other thing which has been really recommended, was recommended in the books I read, was around underwater communication. So when you are underwater, you uh, have a regulator in your mouth 
usually divers communicate to each other through hand signals and that does work but uh, professional divers often will wear a full face mask where they can still talk so they just breathe through the mask and, and have their mouth free and allowing this communication is something that can really save people in this in this way because if you think about Chris and Chrissy if they were able to communicate with the boat someone else could have come down someone you know they could have dropped oxygen for them uh, they could talk to each other to see what was happening to see if they, if they needed to go in it solves a lot of the problems that they are having and that have has led to a lot of of different different tragic accidents but again uh, expensive and not super common so it's something that hasn't been hugely adopted uh, but it's something that we know would make it safer then finally i just want to say that there is a lot of controversy for diving on these wrecks, especially wrecks where people have died uh, because they are, you know, the final resting place. It was confirmed that everyone is very respectful when diving and, and nothing is disturbed, but obviously diving down and taking artifacts and treasure and, and that type of thing is sometimes frowned upon. Uh, and there is there is a lot of controversy surrounding that uh, and different different rules and regulations considering what diving looks like in, in these cases. Uh, so that is something that's also being considered. So yeah, super fascinating. If you are interested in this area two books first book shadow divers by rob curzon it's so good it's so good if you're gonna read even if you no just read it <laughs> there's no there's nothing before that sentence read it it's a really good book it's really interesting goes into everything i've talked about in much more detail it talks about the yoohoo and that whole story it really captured my imagination and everything a long time ago i don't even know how we ended up with this book but I must have had it since I was a teenager and I've read it a few times and it's so interesting. So definitely read that one first. If you read that one and you are interested in deep water scuba and you want to read more, then I also recommend the book called The Last Dive by Bernie Chowdhury. And that is a much more detailed look at the Rouses and their life and what and 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 their tragic deaths um and it also goes through the author bernie chowdhury uh his experience diving and his i mentioned it earlier where he did uh, ascend too quickly and did end up with decompression sickness and how that impacted him and how he how he recovered from that and it also dives into the like the motivations behind diving and, and risky behavior and and why people do it so it is a really good book but Definitely recommend Shadow Divers first out of those two. Uh, it's really definitely worth a read. Alongside all that, I'll put any other uh, show notes and stuff in the references. Uh, so yeah, thank you very much for listening. I would love to know your thoughts, whether you would go deep water scuba diving. Maybe that appeals to you after everything I've said. And please do come and follow me on Instagram at when it goes wrong pod. Uh, love to see you there. Uh, it's been great to chat to some of you. Um, or you can email me at when it goes wrong pod at gmail.com. Uh, again, love to hear your thoughts or any suggestions for future episodes. <laughs>